0: I
1: threw in 20 of flaps, which ballooned us up over the trees. Only problem now, though, is that we were starting to settle. The gear was still out. I had 20 of flaps, were not climbing. There was nowhere to land right in front of me because there was a uh, one-story huge factory, more trees, wires, and then a field that I could get into. I said, so if I can make it over that next set of trees, I might be able to get it into the field. And
2: didn't quite make it. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. And today we've got the great pleasure of hosting our guest, Doug Stewart. Doug is a founding member and the first executive director of the Society of Aviation and Flight Educators, SAFE. His love of flying started when he was nine years old, flying in a Super Cub off a 600 foot grass strip in New England. He's since gone on to become a National Certified Flight Instructor of the Year. He's been an 11-time Master Certified Flight Instructor, a Gold Seal Instructor. He's a designated pilot examiner. He's got over 12,700 hours of dual given. Over 5,700 of that is dual given in IFR conditions. Doug, welcome to the There I Was podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Richard. That's uh quite a bio you gave on me, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: I know a few people that have earned their stripes like you have in general aviation and the kind of instruction you've given, and I also know a few people who just seem to love it as much as you do. It seems to be part and parcel of who Doug Stewart is as CFI.
1: Well, I do say I love everything I do. I've got a lot of knowledge, but my knowledge comes from all the mistakes I've made, Uh, I still make mistakes. I'm still learning. And that's part of the joy to me of flying is that the learning never stops.
2: You and I were talking not long ago, and you mentioned an incident you had flying your uh, Cardinal. So do you mind sharing with us the story?
1: So I went up to visit Bob Martin. He's a role model to me in aviation safety, just a wonderful guy. He had retired and was living uh, now up in Newfound Valley, New Hampshire. And there was a Teeny little airport up there, but he said, You can fly right in there and I'll meet you and pick you up. And so I flew up with my lady friend. And as we got overhead the airport and I looked down, I said, Yikes, you know, that's kind of surrounded by trees everywhere. If you have a problem on takeoff, not quite sure where you go. But we went in and had just a wonderful day with Bob. It was one of the best days of the summer. It was low 70s, about 73 degrees, high pressure, clear skies, uh, very light southwest wind blowing. Just a beautiful day to fly, beautiful day to do anything. Came time to leave and uh, my lady friend was in the left seat. Typically that's the story. She's a pilot as well when we fly. She gets in the left seat or the front seat of my super cruiser and I'm in the right. And she did the run up and I'll be honest, I wasn't paying close attention, but my ear was open just listening for anything and I was just getting stuff into the GPS and things of that nature. And then she said, you know, that maybe, maybe you better take off. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. It was a 1,900-foot strip. Uh, there were trees down at the end. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll fly. And Came in with, with full power, confirmed that, and uh, released the brakes, started my takeoff roll rotation speed that was a 1974 Cardinal was a 65 miles per hour. And I got up to 55 and noticed that uh, it was decelerating a little bit, dropped down to 52. And I kind of said, Hmm, should I abort? And I said, we've taken a bunch of runway. If I abort. I'm not sure I can get stopped. And all of a sudden there I was at 65. I said, okay, let's go and rotated. And now I've got a windshield full of trees coming up at me and it doesn't look like I'm going to clear them. So, I threw in another 10 of flaps. Cardinal typically take off his 10 of flaps. Uh, the book says nothing about 20. But I, I threw in 20 of flaps, which ballooned us up over the trees. Only problem now, though, is that we were starting to settle. The gear was still out. I had 20 of flaps. were not climbing. There was nowhere to land right in front of me because there was a uh, one-story, huge factory, more trees, wires, and then a field that I could get into. I said, if I can make it over that next set of trees, I might be able to get it into the field. I said, I'm not climbing at all now. I'm going to have to clean up the gear and flaps. Now, it was interesting. On the way up there, flying up to visit Bob, I had been thinking about an article that I had to write for Vintage Magazine. I used to write for them once a month. And I come up with the title for the article, which was, sometimes you've got to push when you want to climb. It was an article about being on the backside of the power curve. Mm -hmm. Well, here I was in that situation. The problem was by pushing would have put me right into the middle of the trees. So I tried to squeak it out. I, I decided I had to clean up gear and flaps if I'm going to get any climb at all. I did lose some altitude as I did that, but then started to regain climb and trying to squeak over the trees and didn't quite make it. One blade of the propeller caught a tree, and I know it was one blade when I looked at the, uh, what was left of the airplane. Only one propeller blade was, was uh, damaged or scarred. Came down through the trees. Uh, People said, did your life go before your eyes? And I said, no, the only thing that went before my eyes was what am I gonna do to make a living now? This is gonna destroy this airplane. Came down, hit the ground. I'm sure I was knocked out at the time, I didn't think so. But uh, in the airplane, my side was crushed. Gwen was uh, knocked out cold. There was blood coming down her neck. Uh, Her door was open. I was able to crawl across her, get out of the airplane. Uh, next thing I know, there's a fireman standing over me, and uh, another guy showed up. Get him on board. Get him out of here. We're going to have to cut her out. I said, wait a second. Don't cut. The gas is coming down through the lines and stuff. So anyway, that pretty much reader digest version of what happened, but an awful lot of lessons that I learned in thinking about it afterwards.
2: Yeah, wow. So the uh, end of the story is she ended up being fine, and you both were fine, or can you tell us that? Oh, <laughs> That would be
1: a wonderful ending. I crushed five vertebrae, my l one through five, broke eight ribs in my sternum. Glenna was out cold, but she only had one broken vertebrae, but it exploded. She ended up being in a turtle shell cast for about three months. Uh, they cut her out, flew her down to uh, uh, Mary Hitchcock in, at Dartmouth, and then I asked from the local hospital to be taken down there. We both were out of the hospital in about six days, I was back in an airplane, and in fact, the inspiration for writing the article about being on the backside of the power curve was to fly in a L3, a very anemic L3 with a client. And I was back in that L3 six weeks later.
2: And how about Gwen? Did she recover and return to flying, or what was her?
1: Absolutely, she recovered. uh, Obviously, not quite as quickly as I did, uh, but she's she's back flying uh, even now in, in this COVID times. It's really kind of great. We'll fly in the supercruiser, which she prefers to fly. She'll be in the front seat. But now I get, finally, to sit in the left seat of the cardinal with her. She's acting as my safety pilot, so at least once a week I'm going out and doing proficiency training and getting to things that, that I rarely get to do, things like flying an approach using just the AHARs on the iPad, which is a very eye-opening experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, so we're both still flying,
2: and I guess uh, since they had to cut her out, uh, I suppose the aircraft was a total loss then?
1: Aircraft was a total loss, and I had another cardinal probably in, I guess it's about two months, and that's the cardinal I fly to this day.
2: Wow, what an event. So all of that happened so quickly and happened so quickly to you in the moment. Can we go back and talk through the specific elements of that with you now as an instructor looking back on it? You look in, as you go in, you're like, hmm, okay. 1,900 feet, no problem for a Cardinal, typically. But the trees on either end uh, get your attention going in there. You uh, land and, I don't know, I'm guessing, what's the landing and easy, comfortable rollout on a Cardinal RG? is probably, what, 1,000 feet, 1,100 feet? eleven, twelve hundred 1,200 feet, yeah. So as is typically the case, though, it's it's a lot easier to get into a place than it is to get out of it. So after you landed, did you have any thought about Departure at that moment as you were kind of looking around, or eh, not really? To be very
1: honest, not really. I mean, I was there to see Bob, and it was just a wonderful day. I really didn't give it much thought. I did think, you know, flying overhead, I kind of said, hmm, that's interesting. But the airplane had been running great. There wasn't that much time on, on the engine after an overhaul. I mean, things were, it was a beautiful day, and I didn't have that concern. I'll admit, perhaps there was a bit of complacency there.
2: And so low 70s was the temperature. So density altitude doesn't sound like it really should have been a factor. Or it didn't. It didn't uh, trigger you as hot summer day, humid. The kinds of things we typically you know worry about. But it's interesting that as she took the runway, uh, Gwen. At this point, was she a student pilot? Was she a pilot? She's an instrument-rated uh, airplane, single-engine land and sea pilot. Okay, so she was pretty experienced at the time. Yeah, but.
1: She quite often will defer to me in situations where she's uncomfortable. And uh,
2: so she said, would you mind taking off? Sure. No, I don't mind at all. So she's uh, sitting there at the end of the runway. What's interesting, though, is she kind of looks at it and I guess due to the size of the trees says, hmm, why don't we defer to the more uh, experienced person in the cockpit, right? Which I typically do. I'll tell people when things get sticky, go with your best lineup put the best person in the, in the left or right seat or control the airplane or whatever that case is, which it sounds like you guys do. Right.
1: It is interesting because obviously I beat myself up for a long time on this. And in fact, that was 2008. And here we are 12 years later. And I still beat myself up sometimes. I did get written up for a 709 ride, which was interesting because Bob observed it. And Bob thought I did everything that I possibly could to get out of a bad situation.
2: Tell us what a 709 ride is. A
1: 709 ride is basically a recertification test, and in this, I was going to be tested. I helped you know, help commercial multi-engine, single-engine land, and uh, single-engine seat. A recertification for that, and testing on short-field takeoffs, primarily. Uh, so, in preparation for that, I really double-crunched the numbers using the POH and then factoring in that 50% for an older airplane, I didn't consider myself a low time inexperienced pilot, but I did consider, okay, it's an older airplane. And with all of that, with all of that taken into consideration, the trees shouldn't have been a problem. The, that first set of trees were 2,300 feet from where I started my takeoff role. And doing POH numbers, There shouldn't have been a problem, okay? Now, what I did find out, and this was after probably more than a year when they came out with probable cause, what the FAA stated was that the engine failed to make sufficient power to climb for an undetermined reason. I kind of thought, hmm, that's interesting. But then what they did show, and, of course, I read the whole report uh, they were able to document. I had a shading fuel flow totalizer in it. And in the non volatile memory of that, six seconds into the takeoff roll, the fuel flow dropped from about 19.5 gallons down to somewhere in around 13 gallons. And then finally, when it stopped recording, it had gotten down to 10.8 gallons. And this was in a total of six seconds from the start of the takeoff roll till then.
2: And you had not moved your throttle or your mixture, they were both full forward. Everything was full forward, and I kind of scratched my head what could cause that. And
1: I had known, actually, a client I taught had a very successful landing, again, in a Super Cub, uh, where his engine quit, and he put it into a corn lot, no damage, no nothing, and it turned out the reason was that a baffle had broken off in the muffler and blocked the exhaust system. And I am positive that that is what happened
2: in the airplane. Before we get at that issue, Doug, I just want to be clear. So it's pretty clear that the engine run-up was fine. You felt like you had good power in the engine. You could hear it. You could feel it. You saw the RPM drop, pretty typical. And then at some point on this takeoff roll, you experience a power reduction from the engine for some reason, which the NTSB said was unknown. But for you, you're thinking it was a baffle inside the exhaust. Glenn, it did the
1: run-up, everything sounded fine. I was not watching the tack to see if the drops were right or not, okay? We started the takeoff roll. The only thing I didn't confirm really was fuel flow. The shading was way over. On a, I had a JPI. It wasn't a shading, but I had a JPI 700, and it was over on the left side, and I couldn't see it. But I confirmed full power. I confirmed I had oil pressure and I can waiting for airspeed for rotation. And as I said, it, it was coming up. We were accelerating and it decelerated for a minute. And I considered aborting, but I didn't because part of it was I sucked up a lot of runway at that point. I was about two thirds down the runway. And so I, I was well, well beyond where I should have been. And I knew that. But I said, I'm not sure I can get stopped. And then all of a sudden there was 65, the magic number I was looking for. And really not without putting too much thought through this. It's all happening pretty quickly. Well, here's rotation. Let's go. And rotate it. And that's when I realized we've got a problem because I really wasn't climbing. I had pitched for uh, 72 miles an hour, which is VX. in that was a 1974 Cardinal. So I pitched for VX. And we're climbing, but not like we should. And I saw the trees coming and I I threw in another 10 of flaps. I knew it would balloon me up. Some of that, and I thought about this lion in the hospital. Uh, Ernie Gann, fate is the Hunter, I don't know if you recall, he was taking off on a runway in India with the Taj Mahal right out in front of him. And he wasn't going to clear it. And he threw in extra flaps. Maybe that's where the thought came to me. I don't know. But it got us over. But I knew then that I was really in trouble because I knew it wasn't going to climb. I also knew the gear was still out, and the POH recommends do not actually raise the gear until you clear obstacles. I've got more obstacles coming, and I'm not climbing at all. I'm sinking, and, well, I've got to clear up the gear and the flaps if I'm going to climb at
2: all. The challenge of that is, Doug, so here you are coming at these trees. You throw in an extra 10 degrees of flaps or so, and it's going to balloon you up, but you know that's a short-term solution right because that added drag now you're going to have to overcome with an engine that in your mind for whatever reason it's just not producing the power and the lift that you're used to so you know that's a short-term solution you balloon up over the trees now I would imagine what's going through your mind is you want to get the gear up But that transit period, when the gear is in transit, actually creates the most drag. So you have to be really careful about when you do that, because for a very short period, you're actually going to induce more drag than just having your gear down. Exactly. And
1: that that was a decision that I thought about, and that was a conscious decision. I said, we're going down, right? We were not climbing. We're descending. If I'm going to climb at all, I know I'm going to lose it but it's the only thing I've got left because I'm headed right to the middle of these trees. And I can't put it down underneath me because there's this flat roof building. And I'm just concerned that's not gonna be a very happy ending because there are all these things on the roof, you know, air conditioners and whatever.
2: Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. So interesting that from wherever it came from, in the the deep recesses of your mind, you pull forward this knowledge that says, I need some immediate lift. You grab some flaps. You're dealing with the alligator nearest the boat, right? There's there's more alligators out there lurking, but you got one right here. You've got to clear these trees. Exactly. So you do that. Now you you balloon up over the trees. Great, but you got more flaps than you want. Your gear's still hanging. You got this building in front of you. Did you know at that point, Doug? Did you realize I'm going to hit something?
1: I'll be very honest. I thought I was going to be ahead of for the lowest point of the trees. The trees were not all uniform height.
2: This is the second set of trees
1: after the factory. And I was headed for the lowest of them. And I said, maybe I can nurse this over. And I was kind of working right in that edge of I of, a little too much. It's descending. You know, I was there on the backside of the power curve. I obviously didn't have full power, um, but I wasn't in a mechanical assessing what's, why don't I have full power? I'm just working with, this is what I got. How can I work this to try and squeak over the trees? And I really think if I'd had another two feet, I would have cleared them. And the reason I say that, as I mentioned, I did, you know, my brother picked me up from the hospital. I was in pretty rough shape. And I said, Before you drive me home, I need to go look at the airplane and amongst other things, get stuff, valuable stuff out of the cockpit. And looked at the propeller and one propeller blade was totally unscarred. And I think when that when the one blade hit, that engine just stopped right then and there.
2: So let me ask you, you ballooned over, you've got twenty degrees of flaps. Plus the gear is still hanging. you start edging towards the lowest point of these trees. Were you ever able to dump more flaps in or your hands were just full and you were flying it, as Hoover said, all the way through the crash at that point? I mean what was
1: that pretty much was it. But I, I also knew that if I went full thirty degrees of flaps, I'd be toast. In the Cardinal, and and this is not recommended, this is not POH, but way back when I first became a a Cardinal owner, I went to do some uh, recurrent training with a fellow who's no longer with us, who was the guru on Cardinals. And we discussed the whole issue of flaps and 10 versus 20, and why the book says only use 10 for the short field takeoff and not 20, is because it will give you that extra lift in a short amount of time, but cleaning them up yields sink. Even when you clean up just 10 of flaps, the airplane sinks. That's the nature of that wing, okay? They recommend 10 of flaps for takeoff. They don't say clean. take off with 10. The airplane has a very noticeable sink if you clean up 10. 20 will give you more lift but more sink. Put in 30 degrees of flaps, and you've just thrown out an anchor.
2: So you really weren't able to dump the 20 degrees of flaps that you had, and you, your hands were full, trying to, and I, I'm following you now on 3D view from the flight, and it looks like you were taken off to the southwest. Right, runway 2-1. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it narrows into, and I see the factory that you flew over, and I see the very narrow trees there, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your hands were full, and then at some point you realize that we're, we're going into these trees.
1: Well... I didn't realize, I was, you know, a lot of my articles say hope only belongs in elections. Hope doesn't belong in aviation. I wasn't hoping. I was doing everything I could. And I was still saying, I'm working at this. I'm going to clear these trees. I'm going to clear these trees. And unfortunately, I didn't.
2: It sounds like the cause of the accident was an engine that wasn't producing enough power. And what's so dangerous about this situation is it was insidious. It was an insidious, partial engine failure, which can be so difficult to determine. What are your lessons learned as you look back on it, Doug? The big one, and this is the most important one.
1: For anyone who happens to be listening to this, if, if you take this home with you, it, hopefully it'll save your life. I did not determine my abort point. Shame on me. I did not determine the abort point. Now, it does kind of go back. I'm going to say, oh, it wasn't my fault. No, it was my fault. But part of why I didn't determine it went back to that rule of primacy, where I learned to fly, which was a 2,500-foot strip with trees at the end. There was never a discussion about abort point. The only discussion was technique. And this is how you do a short field takeoff. And this is how you clear the trees. And if it doesn't look like you're going to clear them, well, you sidestep to the right. And there's a hole you can fly through where you miss all the trees. And there's trees either side of you. But there was never a discussion about a point point. There was never a discussion even about confirming. Do you have full power? Do you have oil pressure? Do you have fuel pressure or fuel flow if you have those gauges? And do you determine airspeed alive? That was never discussed it was only through, you know, a lot of experience, uh, being the best teacher and making a lot of mistakes and save for the grace, saving me, I don't know how many times I wouldn't be here. Uh, I've slowly learned. But the one thing I didn't learn was the abort point. Fuel flow, had I been able to see it, even though in this situation, I now always confirm fuel flow before I will rotate. Okay? But even in that situation, the fuel flow would have been there when I looked at it because it, w- it didn't start dropping until I was already into the roll. But when it gets to the abort point, and I know that, that many people teach that 70-40 rule, and I'm totally against that, to be quite honest. 70-40 rule, if you haven't achieved 70% of your rotation speed in the first 40% of the runway abort. Well, what if you're taking off at a 10,000-foot runway? Well, 40% is 4,000 feet. 40% of a 5,000-foot runway is 2,000 feet. Excuse me, a Cardinal, a Cherokee, an Archer, a Skyhawk, a 182 even. If you've taken up 2,000 feet of runway and you haven't rotated yet, something's wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. And now, even though I might very well be at Bangor or Portsmouth or Newburgh, all these 12,000-foot Air Force runways, I still determine that abort Point. And I know for a Cardinal, dependent upon... Weight and balance and density altitude, my takeoff roll could be anywhere between if I'm light, just myself, and low but safe gas. Uh, takeoff roll with some wind and high pressure, three 400 feet to a max at max gross weight, high DA, 1,200, 1,300 feet. If I am not off in that distance, I abort. And prior to getting to that point, I confirm full power. If I'm running a constant speed prop, I'm looking for manifold pressure. If I'm running a fixed pitch prop, I'm looking for an RPM. It's not going to be redline. It's going to be you know, typically a, a Skyhawk or a Cherokee. It's going to be 2300, 2350, something like that. I'm confirming full power, that I have oil pressure. Now I've got a JPI 900. I look at that fuel flow very closely. And if I don't have 18.3 gallons, there's a reason for a bore. And then finally, airspeed alive. If any of those are missing before I get to that determined abort point, not forty percent, I abort, no questions asked. I am convinced, Richard, and, and I did serve on all these different work groups, loss of control, system component failure power plant, CFIT, and system component failure power plant. You know, we saw so many fatal accidents that were related to engine failures on takeoff, and we don't have to go through the whole litany of ways people kill themselves in takeoff, okay? But I am convinced that in many of those accidents, at least 50 percent of those engine failures on takeoff, had the pilot
2: really been monitoring their engines prior to rotation, they would have seen a reason to abort. On the abort point, do you think it's helpful for people, instead of saying, you know, 1,000 feet or 800 feet or whatever, to look down the runway and say, okay, 1,000 feet down or so or about that, you can count runway stripes if you need to is a uh, taxiway, an airplane, the fixed distance marker, whatever it is. So that's where I want to be airborne by that point, a visible point that you can look outside and see, right? That way you still got your head outside the cockpit most of the time. Absolutely.
1: I even say, you know, I do do a bunch of tailwheel training, and I use a grass runway to do that for the initial because we don't have to deal with, you know, if they're not perfectly lined up, the grass is going to be more forgiving than pavement. And I might say, you know, we don't have runway stripes. We don't have, we don't have anything, you know, but it might be you see where that dead groundhog is <laughs> that we hit while we're back taxi. You know, if we're not up here by that dead ground, pick a point out there. Yes, we want to be heads outside. Know what that point is. Even if you had to do a precautionary landing into a, a private grass field. Have a sense of how much, stake it off. Find something that will tell you, I'm at that point, I'm not in the air. At that point,
2: I abort. You know, when you, when you think about it, which is the value of these kinds of discussions, this kind of hanger talk, if you will, uh, that's a tough thing to determine unless you sit and think about it beforehand about what it's going to look like or feel like. And the only way for you to detect some kind of insidious failure like you had, partial failure, where in your mind it's, well, it doesn't quite feel right, but it's not bad enough to trigger a quick or immediate reaction, is to think through it and know what your expectations are of your rotation point and your engine power, like you mentioned. Can we talk a little bit, Doug, about how do you teach people to timeshare between... You do, and I do as well, fly a lot of tail draggers. and uh, recently I'm flying a 180, which, you know, 180 has got a pretty big engine up front. It, it can be a handful, especially if you've got a little bit of a left crosswind coming at you. How do you teach people to timeshare between cross-checking the engine performance and looking outside the window to keep yourself going straight down the runway and out of trouble?
1: Basically, what I teach is at that first application of power, You're going to know right off the bat if it's a power thing. Now, obviously, in my situation with this crash, it wasn't obvious, okay? But at that first application of power, before you're going too fast, before the wind's ready to get you, of course, in the 180, all that torque and everything, you're going to be wanting to head to the bushes anyway. So you certainly have to be paying a lot of attention to directional control. But fairly short into the takeoff roll, before things are going to get, the faster we're going, the quicker things happen. Determine that full power determine that full power determine the fuel flow if you've got it and then check your airspeed and obviously we can't fixate on any of these certainly in the tail draggers we've got to be out the window because in a heartbeat it's headed for the bushes and it might (laughs) and it might be too late to correct by the time we catch it if we're inside the cockpit
2: yeah so that good cross check that visual scan that you have to incorporate that and then You know, I would especially coach people in airplanes that can be a handful on takeoff, a T6 or a Cessna 180, 185, something like that, is there is a point where you add full power and you are focused down the runway to make sure you're controlling the torque and the P factor as, you know, you add all that power going forward, right? Absolutely. got your rudder control, and now once you kind of got that stabilized – Now you've had enough time for your engine should be operating at full power, and you've got a couple seconds to glance down, look at your RPM, look at your manifold pressure, are they where they should be, and now you can move your eyes back outside. And in that interim, what I would coach people to, and I wonder your take on this, is if you suspect that something's not right, just pull the power back and abort you may find that everything was just fine. You know, you were wrong. It, your, your gut instinct and your feeling was wrong that day. Okay, so be it. By the way, I've had that happen. Taxi back to the end runway and take off again. No big deal, right? Absolutely.
1: You know that old saying, it's much better to be on the ground wishing we were up there than up there wishing we were on the ground.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, uh, wrote a wrote a book called Blink where he talked about how much information the brain processes that you can't even really understand and that's why we call it this sort of gut instinct right it really has nothing to do with a gut instinct it has everything to do with all the information that your brain is taking in and comparing it to similar situations before and it says hey something's not right here so the point is if your sense is your spidey senses <laughs> is telling you that something's not right. There's a good chance that you're right. You can't put your finger on it. You can't really articulate it. But there's a good chance that you're right, that there's something that just isn't quite right. So trust that, especially on a takeoff. Abort the takeoff early while you've got a lot of room. And then go back and do the analysis and look through it when you have time.
1: Absolutely. It does entail being fully involved and paying attention, being in the moment. When you get out on that runway and come in with the power, the attention needs to be to a lot of things that are going on and gonna start happening more quickly and more quickly and more quickly. But we need to be, without fixating on any one of those, paying attention to everything. And it's surprising sometimes, I notice that particularly as an examiner, some applicants are kinda of out there in la land as they're taking off you know, uh, not maintaining a center line. Even in a, you know, a nose wheel airplane that, and a low-powered nose wheel airplane with no wind, there's no reason to be going off to the left. Even when I ask, you know, for a short field takeoff, in uh, practical task or a flight review or whatever, why are we headed to the left uh, with that application of power and especially with the yoke all the way back as we would for a nose wheel airplane? We have to pay attention, and we have to pay attention to everything. We can't be complacent. And I got to say, on that day of the crash, I was complacent.
2: Well, it's easy, isn't it? Because ninety-nine percent of the time, if not hundred percent of the time, it all goes well. It, I mean, over and over and over again. If you fly a lot, it just you know it's another routine takeoff, routine takeoff. So, convincing ourselves to be on alert on every takeoff is something that takes a lot of discipline. It's hard to do.
1: Absolutely. It is the most dangerous part of our
2: flight. Well, I want to chat with you, too, about then you're heading for those trees with your optimum lift configuration for short field takeoff in the Cardinal. And you reach down and pull that extra notch of flaps, which balloons you up and did exactly what you thought it would, both the pro and the con, right? It balloons you over that set of trees. And if you hadn't have done that, You'd have never made it past the first set of trees, do you think? I know I wouldn't have. We didn't clear them by much.
1: (laughs) We didn't clear them by much. You know, I didn't think of the consequences of, well, okay, now (laughs) what? Although once I was there, I did. Well, okay, now what? And that's when I had to run through this conscious decision of cleaning up the gear and cleaning up the flaps. I knew I would settle, but I knew it was the only way I was going to continue my climb. And maybe a little bit of hope was there. You know, I headed for the lowest point and I'm going to put every ounce of skill I have. Uh, and in fact, Bob Martens comment to me. And in fact, when they were rolling me on the gurney from the crash site to the ambulance, Bob and Susie were there, and I kind of waved at them. He actually followed the ambulance to the hospital. He said, Doug, from what I was seeing, you did everything you possibly could to keep this from happening. You kept flying until it was all over.
2: That's an incredible story with some... Good lessons learned for all of us, Doug. I'm so thankful for your willingness to share it with us. Is there anything we didn't cover that's worth mentioning from this incident?
1: The most important thing to me is determining that abort point, making sure everything's working right before you get to it. Because once you commit, now you've got to be prepared for anything that could happen.
2: Well, Doug, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your story with us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you when we come on, on the better side of this pandemic. You're one of my most favorite people to run into around the patch and I always learn something from talking to you. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Totally my pleasure, Richard. And I might say to you, thank you so much for your just expert leadership at the Air Safety Institute. I'm just so thrilled with the things that I see you are doing to make for safer pilots and anything I can do to assist in that effort, just holler, please.
2: Thanks so much, Doug, it's great talking to you. Likewise, thank you so much. A harrowing experience and some great lessons learned from one of the most experienced general aviation instructors that I know of, well-respected around the industry, Doug Stewart. He's an icon in general aviation. We're thankful that Doug did survive and his friend and passenger, Gwen, survived and recovered from their injuries and look forward to seeing him soon. Thanks for joining us for this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Payneborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners. If you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.